to Tea Tonic and Toxin, a book club and podcast for anyone who wants to explore the best mysteries and thrillers ever written. I'm your host, Sarah Harrison. And I'm your host, Carolyn Daughters. Pour yourself a cup of tea, a gin and tonic, but not a toxin, and join us on a journey through 19th and 20th century mysteries and thrillers, every one of them a game changer. Sarah. Carolyn, I'm so excited. Me too. Today we have Barbara Nicholas as our yes. guest. Live in the studio. Yes. Wait, there's no live anymore. Live right now. Yeah. Not when you're hearing it. Yeah, we're you and I are a throwback to the 40s. Yeah. The, yeah and that's, the 40s. Come on, how about the 90s? No, ni- 1940s. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> uh, so let me tell everybody a little bit about Barbara. She Barbara Nicholas is the Wall Street Journal and number one Amazon Charts best-selling author of the multi-award winning Sydney Parnell crime novels. Barbara's new series features forensic semiotician, not an easy word to say, Dr. Evan Wilding, a man whose gift for interpreting the words and symbols left behind by killers has led him to consult on some of the world's grisliest cases. Barbara is the winner of the Daphne du Maurier Award for Excellence, the Golden Quill Award, Suspense Magazine's Best Debut of 2016, Amazon Editor's Best Mystery, Thriller, and Suspense Novel, and a four-time recipient of the Colorado Authors League Writing Award. In addition, she has been nominated for the Colorado Book Award five times and won three times. Barbara lives in Colorado at the foot of the Rocky Mountains, where she loves to hike, cave, snowshoe, and drink single malt scotch. Her most recent travels, while conducting research for a novel, involved taking cover from rocket fire and being grilled at military checkpoints. So much to find out. I know. That was really exciting. I wanted to ask about Mm -hmm. that. Welcome, Barbara. Thank you. Before we let you talk more than that. <laughs> Wait, what? That, and that, folks, was the interview. Welcome. I'm going to just read a little back of the book summary of Barbara's upcoming book. Barbara, has this already come out or is it about to come out? It came out in November. Okay, awesome. I apologize for not knowing stuff. On a stormy Chicago night, renowned, how do you say, semiotician? Semiotician. Semiotician. Dr. Evan Wilding and his brother River, who's back from an archaeological dig, reunite in a mystery. A package addressed to both of them contains a hand-drawn maze, an ancient Cretan coin, and a cryptic greeting. Let the game begin. The opening move is murder. In a downtown alley, a man has been found nearly cleaved in two, a symbol drawn on his forehead and a savage rip in his throat. Given the clues... Evan sees a parallel to a fearsome Greek myth, which means his friend, Detective Addie Bissett, is on the trail of a legendary flesh-eating monster, one terrifyingly human and tumbling a panicked city toward chaos. Evan, Addie, and River scramble to discover who's behind the appalling crimes and decipher the baffling motives. The body count is rising. The end game is nowhere in sight, and the stakes are nothing less than life and death. Ooh. It sounds fascinating. It is fascinating, folks. Carolyn and I both got to read it. Yes, I loved it. I I found it to be a, a great page turner. And in fact, sometimes I would get to the end of a chapter, and like last night I was finishing, and 
are getting very close to finishing. And I was like, oh, I'm just going to pick this up in the morning. I'm like, no, I am not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to keep, I just, I, I wanted to keep reading. And the chapters are very well structured such that each one ends at, at this really nice. Yeah, it makes I, you like jump into the next mm-hmm. one before you pause yourself. Is that something you know how to do on purpose? Yeah, I was going to say, well, my work here is done. <laughs> <laughs> That is definitely something they teach us and you know, ABCs of authorship is mm-hmm. like never end a chapter with the character going to sleep because mm-hmm. then that's what your readers will do. Um, oh, interesting. So keep it moving. And I and I read a Hannibal Lecter book mm-hmm. um, that way. I the chapters were short and they were cliffhangers and mm-hmm. I stayed up all night. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah. This is, I cannot actually read before bed because then I can't sleep. Mm. I, my brain just like, what's happening? It won't let go. And I actually, and so our interview will reflect this a little bit. I am neurotic about my slow reading. So I went ahead and bought the first book in the series too <laughs> and read that one. Thank you. Um, and so some of my questions, some of our questions kind of compare and contrast the first and the third book. So... Maybe, Barbara, maybe we should talk about where you were earlier today before we got to see you. You were at a really cool event that we were just hearing about. Absolutely. I was at a Sisters in Crime event here in Denver. And Mm. Sisters in Crime is a group that was formed to give women more of a voice in mystery and thriller writing. Mm -hmm. Because um, at one point, it was mostly men authors. And there was definitely a bias that way. Um, so women are wonderful at supporting women. We have this local group. We have quarterly meetings. We have book clubs. Um, you don't have to be published to be a member. We have plenty of pre-published members. Mm-hmm. And men are welcome, too. We call them misters. And they're <laughs> part of the group. That's awesome. That's awesome. So we got Barbara while she was up here today mm-hmm. to come join us in the studio. Yeah, so I have not read the first book. Um, so I'm interested in... Sarah, your take, and obviously, Barbara, yours, on the evolution of our protagonist, Dr. Evan Wilding. So you write a, a first book with him, and, you know, you're you're developing basic his character basically from whole cloth, right? It's I'm, I'm figuring out who right. he is. But in many cases in a series, an author is learning about their characters as the books evolve. And so how did he start out as a character? And then how did he change over the books? Oh, those are great points, Carolyn. So Evan actually came to me 20 years ago. Really? (laughs) You know, sort of like um, Athena coming from Zeus's head. (laughs) He just came in, the name, um, everything about him, except that I changed Instead of the detective being his brother, I changed it to the love interest or potential love interest. Mm. Um, so he came came to me. I don't really know where, from where. Um, and it's always interesting with series and, and the characters, how much they can grow and change or how much they need to grow mm-hmm. and change. So I know that some series writers plan out their character's entire arc. Mm. from from first book to the 20th or whatever it is. I don't do that. I I just kind of let the characters show me what they want to do or mm-hmm. the direction they want to head in. Mm-hmm. Um, so he sprang out of my interest in undeciphered writings and codes and all of that stuff that we love as kids, right? Yeah, that was that was amazing the way you got into that. So I noticed, you know, the, the very first book in the series, you went deep, deep, deep. <laughs> 
on uh, runes <laughs> and how to translate runes. And there was pages and pages of runes and the process. You called it transliteration and how that works. And I was like, whoa. You know, it, re- it reminded me of um, an author we've read a couple of her books already. And we're going to read another one. Dorothy Sayers. Oh. Are you familiar with her? I'm familiar with her, although I haven't read her work. I'm sad to say. Yes, she was she- part of the group in New York. Right? She is British. She was British. Yeah, yeah she was, was writing around the same time as Agatha Christie. Mm-hmm. And uh, she is very different from Agatha Christie. Agatha Christie, f- for me, is always a page turner and just, you know, amazing from beginning to end. And um, I find with Dorothy Sayers that I would it would take me a while to get in it. And I'd sometimes be a little confused. And then she would get me and she wouldn't let go. And she does something that you do, which is she dives really deep into mm-hmm. particular subject matters. She either came in with that expertise or decided I want to learn more about that and displayed her research and expertise in the book in such an interesting way that the readers come away feeling like I was entertained and educated there, which is how I felt with your book, by the way, as I, you know, it's, it's obviously scratching the surface, but. I felt like these are things that I've never given any thought to. I've been to Crete, and I never thought about any of these things. So, uh, so you have nightmares now? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I'm never going back. I'm <laughs> but, I mean, talk a little bit about your your process, your interests, your research. So this book is going really deep into signs and symbols and semiotics. And what are, where are your interests there? You obviously have interests there. What did you come into the books knowing? What did you sort of evolve as you were writing the books? And like, talk talk a little bit about your interests there. Sure. So Evan, as a character, actually appears in the last book of my previous series. And that was when after this 20 years of wondering what to do with this character, he finally had a a place for me to put him, which was dealing with... um, the manifestos posted by mass murderers mm. um, talking about how the world has wronged them and why they need to kill a bunch of people to feel better about that. Yeah. <laughs> so um, my editor asked me to do a spinoff series based on that character. Mm-hmm. And as I was trying to figure out what my story would be um, and what particular languages and codes he would be working with, um, I lost my son oh, no. to epilepsy. Um, and one of the many amazing things about Kyle is he had a real work ethic and, and I knew that he would not want me to stop working on this book. So I buried myself in what I love. So in college, I was a medievalist, um, and studied a lot of old English literature, including Beowulf. And Uh so I went back to those wonderfully personal or immersive things, um, too many runes, maybe, <laughs> but that was that was what I needed at the time, and so I'm grateful that my editor was tolerant of that, and that a lot of readers have appreciated learning about it. Mm-hmm. Um, had I written the book under different circumstances, it might not have been quite so old English poetry and kennings and, and runes heavy, um, but it was real solace to me at the time. No, that I thought that was awesome. You're like, well, what you didn't know was your Beowulf, <laughs> and then you know Evan could figure it out. And and I'm guessing the second book had a similar theme. I didn't get through that one, but then your third book here, The Play of Shadows, went much more into these Cretan 
un, undeciphered languages. Tell us about those. Sure. So that's always been a fascination. And that was one reason I turned to Crete was because, first of all, I mean, I just love Greek mythology. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up with that. My mother was a literature teacher. And oh, okay. um, I absolutely loved hearing those stories. And and then the fact that Crete has these undeciphered scripts. And I already had planted that Evan was working on the Phaestos disc, <laughs> which is a disc that was found in Phaestos in Crete um, that that still is uninterpretable. Um, and now I've heard that artificial intelligence is actually might be making a break on linear A, which is one of the really? undeciphered scripts wow. from Crete. I so, just read an article yeah. about AI deciphering undeciphered scripts like it, on the way here. It's interesting. I want to see what they do with that because a big problem with deciphering linear A is they don't know what language it was written. The, the culture from Crete is the Minoan culture, and they mm-hmm. don't know what language they were speaking, which makes it really hard to, to decipher a script. So it'll be interesting to see where that goes, and I'm hoping it doesn't put Evan out of a job. Right. <laughs> Keep all his books before 2023. Yes. All his stories. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's well, just a jam-packed life <laughs> between 20, 2018 and 2023 or something A book like for that. every week, right? Yeah. <laughs> Do you have in your mind, um, are there more Evan books you're planning to write? Does this story continue, or are you wrapping it up here in the third book? Actually, we're probably just doing a trilogy, and I'm moving on to, I'm writing my first standalone, and it's a spy thriller, so that's new for me. Um, A big thing for me as a writer is I'm always trying to figure out how to learn the next thing. What have I not done yet? First person versus third person, or single point of view versus multiple points of view. Oh, that's interesting. So kind of the technical details inspire you in your next story. As a pianist, I you know, it's the same thing, right? You 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 do these etudes to try and and learn different skills and I do the same thing with writing. So um so with good reviews on Play of Shadows, it's like, okay, great. I can do, you know, a (laughs) cast of eight or whatever it is. Um what's next and so now spy thrillers we'll see how that goes <laughs> oh that's awesome it's like you're kind of competing against yourself there exactly personal best right yeah and evan is a pianist so that's really neat that you are too is yeah evan, evan is a he's pi- well mm-hmm. he's a little restricted he okay. would love to be a pianist okay. and and i think that was channeling some of my own frustrations because one of my favorite composers is edward grieg and um, he had big hands, <laughs> set mm-hmm. lists, and I can't compete with that. And I used to get so frustrated mm-hmm. trying to to. Yeah, you make talked about the bands. finger reach, mm-hmm. and I'm going to get confused in which book I'm talking about. I feel like it's it must be the first I one. Think I think so, he's giving yeah. piano lessons. Yeah, to the to the and neighbor's daughter. Yeah, yeah. he has okay. this internal monologue about the reach of his fingers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's very in- very interesting. And so even so, this book has. Uh, Play of Shadows has multiple authors. And so the, each chapter is starting with the name of the person from whom the third person narration is coming. So we're channeling Addie's thoughts, we're channeling Evan's thoughts or Rivers. Um, do you write first person as well? Or is that a, a future challenge of yours? Actually, my first series was in first person. Okay. So Sydney's stories were all first person okay um which i found out later that beginning writers aren't supposed to do but nobody had told me that why is that um i think just because it can be difficult to separate the author from Mm. the character Mm. um and so going to third person with evan was a challenge Mm -hmm. i didn't know if i could do that and so i think sometimes you just write your way into it see which Mm -hmm. works best Mm -hmm. 
did you find it challenging or enjoyable maybe to be able to jump from one head to the next in these chapters? I mean, even the Minotaur in this book has, uh, you know, some some chapters. So you're able to dip in and out of various people's heads, which if we're only channeling one protagonist and only in one person's head, maybe we have that comprehensive view, but maybe this is more, I don't know, maybe more fun. Yeah, the short answer to that is yes, mm-hmm. both both more fun and and more challenging. Um, I in the in the thriller genre, we were talking about this earlier with the cliffhanger on the endings, and and a very effective way to do that is to switch point of view. Mm-hmm. And with my first series with Sydney, I found myself a little frustrated because I could never cut away to where the action was really happening mm-hmm. because it was like a camera inside her head; it was always mm-hmm. right with her. So this way. I can leave Addie in a predicament and jump to Evan and leave Evan in a predicament and jump to River. And right. um, so, it, you know, keeping track of the threads was a little more difficult, but um, the rewards were, were worth it. Mm-hmm. I noticed, too, that was one of the differences that jumped out at me between the first and third book. As the first book, you did go back and forth between Evan and Addie, but you didn't label them. And then in the third book, you went back and forth, and there was a lot of different characters. Um how tell it was that one of the technical challenges you like set yourself like a goal or tell me how that changed throughout the series so first to address the fact that the that in the first book that the points of view aren't labeled evan and Addie, that that probably should have been consistent (laughs) (laughs) and it just didn't happen but i think with two characters it's less confusing right i didn't feel like there was any confusion at all i just kind of like dove in there and saw who was talking which, of Good. course, if you're doing it for five or eight characters, that it, that could potentially be quite confusing. Yeah, I think it was easier to send that clear signal. But that was specifically the challenge I set for myself was was to move in between those those heads. And, and when you do that, really, every time you jump point of view, you're sort of starting the book over because the reader will get immersed mm-hmm. with one character. And sometimes I'm sure you've had that reading oh, yeah. experience where you're like, no, I really want to stay with yeah, this go character. Go back to the character <laughs> yeah. I want. Don't yeah. give me that character. Exactly. <laughs> totally. Um, and so I I did my best to make sure that when I transitioned like that, the mm-hmm. characters um, were in the middle of some sort of interesting action to pull the reader through. Right. So in some cases, the next chapter from the next channeling, the next character is happening um, almost simultaneously. Like we see Rivers doing this and Evan's doing this other thing. And in some cases, the next chapter is sort of picking up the baton from the last one. Like a relay race. Yeah, Yeah. and and so we're kind of moving from one moment in time to the next moment in time. And that kept me reading. Um, So I didn't at any point feel, okay, this character's chapter's ending. I'm moving in a new chapter. Now's the time to go to bed. Like I was like, (laughs) no, this is like... Let's figure. I need to know what's happening next. So, I, I really felt that pretty consistently from beginning to end of the book. That, oh yay! Thanks. Yeah, that I really wanted to know, like, which is a skill set, right? Mm-hmm. So there's an arc for the whole novel. There's an arc. Oh, look back up even one more. There's an arc for a series. So yes. You're saying some people map out the whole series, and then there's an arc for a novel, and then each of the chapters have a, a sort of mini arc or. Yeah, this what they call a scene and sequel. Yeah. And so that's, I would think, challenging to do. You have 50 some odd cha- chapters in here. I, I think. Yeah, how do you manage all the different 
technical aspects of which I'm not a writer. So I'm always just entranced by how writers accomplish what they do. Yeah, I think I'm still trying to figure that out. <laughs> it like, seems like you figured it out. Part of me is like, oh, my poor brain is getting too old for this game. <laughs> um, but I think once you're actually immersed in the story, there's there's a rhythm, there's a pattern. Um, and my I would hope that most writers start out as readers first. And so you, you internalize a lot of that story-making pattern. Um, I started out with fairy tales, which is, mm. you know, one of the oldest ways of telling stories. And I still love fairy tales. Yes. Um, and I think that some of that comes out in my work, too. So hopefully. Tell, what do you mean you started out with fairy tales, like writing them, reading them as a kid? What reading you, them. Mm. I think it was, his name was Andrew Lang, the colored fairy hmm. books. Um, so there was green, yellow, violet, all these beautiful stories and with lovely illustrations. And mm. I thought life should be a fairy tale mm -hmm. and, you know, the prince was going to ride in and everything was going to be fine. Um, and and then the darker aspects of some fairy tales, a lot of Grimm's fairy tales have been sanitized for sure. mm -hmm. for kids, but Majorly. the originals, yeah, were, were very dark. And um, Bettel Brunenheim, I just slaughtered that name totally. <laughs> but he, um, he talked about the value in letting children see these dark things mm. um, so that so that they don't go through life quite so naive because bad things will happen so it's a it's a teaching tool it's preparatory yeah. to, mm -hmm. to what might come heightened awareness yeah yeah it's a good way of putting it yeah yeah Sarah I know you love fairy tales oh yeah I'm a huge so I have a four-year-old and a two-year-old and I'm obsessed with children's literature so it's, oh. it's not just grim that was dark mm -hmm. they all were like Hans Christian Andersen yes. rips yes. my heart out. I'm That's like the girl I've, with the red shoes, right? Isn't that Hans yeah, the Matchstick Girl? The Matchstick Girl. Yeah. But he's. I have his complete collection that I read through each of my children while I was nursing them. Aww. And I mean, I'm like, this is not a fairy tale. This is a story about a prostitute dying a terrible death, and you're calling it. I'm confused, but <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, yeah, they were just the Little Mermaid. Yeah. Yeah, they're moral stories. Yeah, she dies, moral. folks. She dies. Spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> Go read The Little Mermaid. Edit, Pinocchio. Edit this part out. Oh my this goodness. part out. No. You could, the Little Mermaid's old enough that if you haven't read the original, then I you got to tell you something to make you go read it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she turns into a wind. Anyway. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, Pinocchio was crazy, but... Yeah. And it, it's the same thing with our classical literature, right? Mm -hmm. You look at the Iliad and yeah. the Odyssey, and these are not about pretty things. Yeah. Well, yeah, so you go very, very deep, uh, both books, and it sounds like more than that, into kind of the psychology of the psychopath, the serial killer, and um, tell us about why you're kind of honing in. You do touch in both books that I read on, on a little bit around their origin story too. So tell me about the serial psychopath and, and why this is your... Well, you know, first of all, it just makes a good story. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, the psychology is absolutely fascinating of what causes somebody, what combination of nature and nurture causes somebody to to turn into a monster mm -hmm. um are they made are they born mm -hmm. um one of one of the books that i used was jonathan kellerman he's he's known for his um 
mystery novels, mm-hmm. but he is a psychologist, and he wrote a book called Savage Spawn about oh. where children, how how children turn bad and why. And so that was really a Bible for me in writing Play of Shadows mm. um, and how how does society and how does the family either nurture healthy response or help foster that that bad response? Mm-hmm. How, so, they, how they contribute to whatever the child ultimately becomes. Exactly. And if you took a pair of twins, which have, you mm-hmm. know, start out with essentially identical nature and put them in different environments, mm-hmm. why does one become a serial killer and the other one becomes a college professor or a, or right. a psychologist themselves? Sure. So what did you learn? Share with our listeners real quick what you learned about the nature of psychopathy. It's not bright. It's not bright. It's nurture seems to take, or I'm sorry, nature seems to take a huge aspect of this. And they've actually done brain scans that show that the the brains themselves physiologically are different as well as the the parts of the brain that light up from like day one information. Um, from a young age. Because that yeah, was the research of one of your characters, right? Yeah. Peter and yeah. Lowell's father was researching kind of good and evil children. Yeah. Where does, where does evil come from? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and so as a society, what do we do with people who really probably can't help being what they are? You know, we're so, especially since the Victorian times, we're so moralistic and judgmental about people, whether they're dealing with addiction or whether it's overweight or, you know, whatever thing that they might have that we tend to think, well, just stop Mm -hmm. or just do this differently. Um, If your brain is different, Mm -hmm. how do we how do we respond to that? And how do we deal with people who no matter what kind of treatment they might get while in prison, Mm -hmm. aren't going to get better, they're going to be psychopaths, because that's what their brain is. Do you have any, like, ideas about that? I thought you were going to ask me if I had a psychopathic brain. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I hope not. You certainly could. You've you've charmed us here. I don't know where we're going. Oh, well, that's a characteristic of a psychopath. (laughs) I know, exactly. (laughs) Um, No, do I have any ideas on solving that? Yeah, that sounds like the unsolvable problem. I think so. And I think, again, going back to addiction, it's a little bit like that, Um, what do we do as a society with with these? And um, we need to sort of rip the top off some of this and dive deep and and say, okay, what we've got's not working. Mm-hmm. What are some of our other alternatives? And I I don't know. There's a reason I'm not in politics because I don't have the answers. <laughs> like I'll write a novel about it. Exactly. <laughs> I might explore things, but I'm I won't end up with an answer. Yeah, I, I didn't feel like the the novel was prescriptive in any way, mm-hmm. as if okay, readers, this is the situation. If we just do this, right? Because the one character uh, is he has two sons in the novel, and one of them, you know, might have been a problem child as a child, and so he takes various steps to try to bring him back in line. I'm going to send him here. I'm going to educate him in this way. I'm going to. So he's sort of playing with even what's possible despite hard wiring i guess yes can exactly you, can you can you loosen the wires in a hard wire sort of thing beautifully and, said carolyn yeah did you well guys we're beautiful. done okay. this has been wrapping fun. it up Whole beautifully podcast. said <laughs> <laughs> my day has been made and we will talk to you soon <laughs> was um wait wait <laughs> Was Peter's father modeled on any particular researcher that you've been? It's, you clearly dive deep into your research. I do. I, I, 
I really, it's, I have to find the book to write that goes with the research that I want to do. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But no, he's not modeled any particular character, just a certain type of autocratic father, um, a little bit of that arrogance of, of what some people, and I will say it's often men because our society supports that attitude more in men than in Mm -hmm. women, um, that they figure there's nothing they can't solve they can't mm. figure out because they're very smart yeah you do have, you kind of there's a lot of moments of hubris in the book where somebody is sort of doing the impossible and either very proud of themselves or or know that they're kind of like maybe overreaching a little bit yeah yeah you're <laughs> yeah. right yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's I, like I say sometimes, well, this person is amazing. How do you know? Just ask them. You know? <laughs> and uh, yeah, there's there's a, a little bit of that sort of, you know, throwing around the, the degrees earned and the, you know, you know, the oh, bona fides yes. and all that, that kind of thing. Um, well, you have to understand my family's from the South and that's a thing. Yeah. Oh, you know, okay. it's like, oh, where did you get your degree? Ah. Oh, well, my child got their degree from... All that kind yeah. of probably not up just isolated to the south, but yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> probably not. No, no. Um, there's so much research that goes. I, I would imagine. I'm guessing that goes into your books. At some point, I was overwhelmed by it as a reader, not not in a in almost a identifying with the author sort of way, where I thought. What she did here in all of mm-hmm. all of these areas was incredible, mm-hmm. and then you're a prolific writer on top of that. So, mind blown. So you have to understand something about semiotics. You're understanding something about police procedure. You're understanding something about psychology, or what? What am I missing? Chicago, the University of Chicago. Well, now like, there's rocket fire added to that. I want to hear more about that too. But there's this research process. Yeah, there's there's so there's so much that. You could see why some budding authors who want to write, you know, I want to write this novel, may never ever write that novel because, wow, like what I just said is mind blowing. And yet you did it in all of these areas in the book in a way that reflected to me as the reader that you understood what you were writing about. So like, what is that process of, of all of the, understanding all yeah. of these different areas? How are, what, what are you researching? How are you researching? Who are you talking to to like confirm that you know you're not out in left field with regard to police procedure here or whatever the thing is yeah give us some days in your life of researching a novel yeah sure sure so i will start by saying honestly i don't recommend it (laughs) (laughs) my i learned about publishing cadence which is apparently the frequency with which you put out a book Mm. and i don't have the best publishing cadence oh, really? and so what my publisher wants from me is a book every nine to 12 months Ooh, that's a and lot of if books. i could write one without all that research mm-hmm. it would be much faster <laughs> so any of you who are intimidated by research don't be just write your story mm-hmm. um i happen to love the research process yeah and when i first started out and i didn't have any publishing credits it was really difficult for me I would I would read books because that's safe and that's always the first thing I turn to is Mm -hmm. a book Mm -hmm. um, for information but when it came time to actually reach out to people it was it was intimidating Um, and I was very lucky to meet a detective here in Denver through somebody introduced and he was not only um, a detective with the police department but he was also a rail fan so he knew so much about trains and he Mm. took me um, 
he took me to to view the homeless sites. He wouldn't let me go in for some reason. <laughs> um, he got me in Union Pacific, and I got to get on a train, and it was all um, very exciting. And mm. and then once I had that first publishing credit, um, it became easier to go to what we used to call in the corporate world SMEs or mm-hmm. subject matter experts. Yeah. And most people love to talk about what they do. There's yes. a reason they do. I just I just had a two hour phone call yesterday with a yacht expert in Florida for my current book. And I could not shut him up, but I didn't want to. I mean, he was fascinating. He had so many things to say. So having, if most writers are introverts, I think that's probably true. Um, So having the courage to make those cold calls, Mm -hmm. just recognize that people love to tell their stories. And most Mm -hmm. people are astonished by writers. Um, So that's a huge source. And then, of course, the books. And then I signed up for things like the FBI Citizens Academy, the Sheriff Citizens Academy, the Police Citizens Academy. What is that? I'm not familiar with that at all. So these are all organizations designed to let the public know what these law enforcement agencies do. So you can experience what are they all about? Why do they do what they do? You get to do ride-alongs. When I did my police Right along, it, we had everything that night. We had a suspected homicide. It turned out not to be. It it was a suicide. Mm. We had um, a home invasion. We had um, kids doing drugs. We had a gang incident. We had the cop accidentally lock me in the back of his <laughs> squad car. And this was while he was interviewing accidentally. the suspect of the supposed homicide victim. Oh, wow. Oh, I was in the backseat for that. It's like, mm. I can't get out. <laughs> I'd, like to, I'd like to get out. I'd, I'd like to leave, just in case this guy really is homicidal. <laughs> um, yeah, and then there was a domestic violence incident where mm-hmm. I had to go and hide because people really? showed up at the doors. It was very exciting. So that's a great way to get a sense, of course, of, of what their mm-hmm. daily life is like. And then I also volunteered to be a victim in... Um, especially situations with first responders. So we had a scenario with um, the sheriff's department where there had been a bomb that derailed a train. And mm-hmm. and so we were victims um, on the ground and they didn't warn me what we might go through. Mm-hmm. And, and so all of a sudden we're up on a gurney. <laughs> they won't get any volunteers. See, yeah, exactly. Right. Nobody will volunteer. You can't see anything. You've got clothes on, you know, that you've put on these rags so that mm-hmm. they can tear them apart. And, right. stuff. and suddenly you're being put through this cold shower because they have to wash off any toxic materials. So. Mm. And nobody, there would be a cold shower. It's very realistic, your response. Um, so all of wow. that feeds into it, and it's mm-hmm. it's a hoot and a half to be honest. Mm-hmm. That's I knew I knew that medical schools had like, you know, fake victims. I did not. I guess I should have. I did not realize the police also had these sort of victim yeah, scenarios. practices scenarios. I got to do a gang shooting and hit by a paintball. I got to do a gang shooting. SWAT team broke in, and I was supposed to reach. You were for a the gang gun. member. I was a gang member. All right. Member. Did you get anybody? No, they got me. Okay. Oh. Well. Good, I guess. That's, yeah, that's right. That's what you get for being in a gang. <laughs> that so, is wild. That's some intense research. Is how does that relate to this whole rocket fire and military checkpoints? Is that your upcoming book? That's actually the book after the one I'm currently working on. So I went to Israel and the West Bank. Whoa. Yeah, this was in May before everything that happened. I, I yeah. was very fortunate to get yeah. in and out. Yeah. 
um, before that. But it was we were in Tel Aviv, and it was the first time that Hamas had fired on Tel Aviv in several years. And and it was kind of funny if we have time for that. Absolutely, we have all the time for that. <laughs> yes. We had we were with the tour group. My I call her my travel wife because our husbands <laughs> don't want to travel, so we travel together. They don't want to be involved in one of these. Yeah, they're pretty smart. It's police, like, no, don't, don't go with Barb and Kathy. It won't work out well. <laughs> so it, you know, it was three o'clock in the afternoon. We were done for the day, and mm-hmm. I'd taken a shower. I was in my bathroom, and Kathy was in the shower. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, I hear the sound that sounds like an ambulance. Only it just keeps going and going and going, and I mm-hmm. realize. Oh, that's that's Kathy's phone, and it's it's a red alert. And I look at it, and it says, you know, bombs, bomb alert, Tel Aviv. And then I start hearing boom, 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 boom. Oh, oh my wow. goodness! So you know, what does an American tourist do when they Get hear under boom, the boom, bed. boom? No, she runs out on the balcony to see what's happening. <laughs> oh my goodness, Barbara! <laughs> and and I saw. So they have. Um, what they call the Iron Dome, which are Patriot missiles that yeah. will take out the incoming fire. Mm. And so I saw those explosions. I saw people running in from the Mediterranean wow. to, to take shelter because even when the the mortar fire is taken out by these Patriot missiles, mm. there's shrapnel. Right. So you don't want to be outside. So um, I went back in, and, and I'm knocking on the door. I said, Kathy, I really think we should go to the safe place. <laughs> Get out of the shower. <laughs> Shower's done. She comes out. She hasn't heard any of it. She, and And... She's wearing shorts and a T-shirt, and I'm in my bathroom. I said, we need to go to the safe place. And she looks at me, and she says, I am not leaving this room in my shorts. Oh, all right. (laughs) I said, you know, Americans are just so naive. Um, So, yeah, everybody else was was herded into the safe place. And finally, the hotel sent somebody out to very politely say, are you nuts? She's doing her makeup. Do it. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, just a minute. Yes. I'm almost ready. My hair is oh wet. My goodness. <laughs> I'm, I'm picturing you on the balcony looking at all of these empty balconies, except a few scattered people who are also Americans. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Pretty much. There yeah. was two uh, husband and wife from our, from our tour group were on the street mm. and I won't use the language that was used on them because you know, we're on the air, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but they said, you will get the bleep inside. Somebody came out and grabbed them because they were doing like I was, which is staring up with your mouth open. Sure. Wow. <laughs> Yeah. So, and then we had a military checkpoint, and that too was mm-hmm. um, that was scary because yeah. we were coming out of the West Bank. We had a Palestinian driver, and that's why we got pulled off. And oh. they really gave us a third degree, and they're standing there with their AR-15s, mm. and um, like, well, we have a plane to catch. Mm-hmm. I did not know being a writer was this exciting, but maybe I should become a writer. I think you should it's, come to the dark side. It's <laughs> <sounds> amazing. <laughs> You get to do everything. I do try. It's it's a lot of fun. It really is. Well, it makes it extremely believable. Like Carolyn, oh, I was just you. like, how does she know all this right. stuff? I've I've read, you know, I've written some fiction and read a lot of people's draft fiction, and you know, probably mine when they're reading it. But you can tell when you know somebody's set their book in Paris, and you know, and you're reading it, and you're like. You've never been to Paris, have you? You know, like you you can tell that and you can tell when somebody has been somewhere, done whatever the activities are, or has at least enough knowledge to have asked the questions and really covered the bases. And, you know, at the back of the book, you mentioned beta readers and you have all of these subject matter experts who are reading what you've done and, and weighing in. Plus, you're getting this firsthand 
you know, boots on the ground experience in a lot of these areas. So I think it does make a difference from a reading perspective. It feels real. Mm-hmm. I'm glad to hear that. Mm-hmm. And and just for those writers who can't get to Paris for whatever reason, you know, yeah. it's find those subject matter experts, find the people who want to talk. Yeah. And there's always Google Maps, yeah. which is really useful. But um, I watched an interview with an espionage writer. She was with the CIA. Mm-hmm. And somebody pointed out that um, in northern Italy, they don't drink Prosecco. Mm. In southern Italy, they love it. Oh, She's like, well, those, those mistakes are just going to happen. Yeah, <laughs> Be forgiving of yourself. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not going to be perfect, for sure. Your Italian audience will judge you, but they judge everything you eat. But so just having an Italian audience is a win, right? That means you're international this is and true. your book is being read everywhere. We should all be so lucky as to, like, the book is being read around the world and somebody found fault with the Prosecco. And, yes, you know, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Darn. Yeah. So many eating mistake stories from Italy when I was there and all the all the judgment heat that came to oh, oh. <laughs> We are so judgy as a society these Cappuccino? days. Cappuccino? After lunch? Are you crazy? Or are you American? (laughs) And you're on vacation, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the research areas that is a little less aggressive, um, but I know you must have done some, is into dwarfism. Yeah. And so that's a major, major component in this series. Uh, Evan is a person with dwarfism. Tell me about how you landed on that and and how you go through that. Yeah, I... for me, that was an angle that was that was fascinating and actually a lot of fun. Um, and I'm going to go back to just a very small personal experience I had. So um, I'm blind in my right eye, mm. and I was working for Corporate America, and I was I was attending this conference, and and at some panel, somebody asked, "Well, I work with with somebody who's blind in in one eye, and their eye turns in, and I never I'm, I'm so uncomfortable looking at them. I never know how to handle it, and I'm sitting there going." that's me I'm the one with the <laughs> eye turning in and um yeah. and I and I wanted to stand up I did stand up to say here's here's how to handle that you know just mm-hmm. ask them which is the good eye and mm-hmm. and but the thing that shocked me is I found myself sounding very defensive mm-hmm. like oh this is a defect and I have to apologize for it and I have to make allowances for it and I have to explain pe- to people how to react to it and it's it's a minor disability but it's real. And so I think that paved the ground, you know, when when um, sometime after that, Evan popped up as a character. And I always feel as if with each book, you have a chance to be a voice for someone. Mm-hmm. And and there's a lot of argument in publishing and in the world right now. Who, mm-hmm. Whose voices do we have the right to claim? And whose, right. whose voices can we speak in? And whose shoes can we walk in? But the beauty of a novel is it allows you to walk in the shoes of somebody you never would. Mm-hmm. Um, so for whatever reason, Evan came to me. He always had dwarfism. And um, and so I just decided to go with that. And so that's one, again, I dug in to my research. Mm-hmm. I don't personally know anybody with dwarfism, so that was out. I reached out to the little people of America and did not mm. hear back. Oh, really? Um, that's surprising to me. Yeah, I don't I don't know what that was about. Um but I read memoirs, I read books. There's a wonderful book called um, Far From the Tree by Andrew Solomon. And he talks partly about his experience as a gay man with parents who are very disapproving. But then he mm. drills down into specific things 
of when parents have children who are very different from them mm. and how do you raise a child like that and um, and he had a whole section on dwarfism, which was extremely really? helpful. Mm-hmm. And then they made a documentary of that, which I can't recommend highly enough. It's absolutely What's brilliant. the name of it? Far from the Tree, Far Andrew from the Solomon. Tree. Okay, we'll have to put that in the show notes or something. Yeah, it's it's something I think everyone should read and, and understand where people are coming from. And um, I also put somebody in my in At First Light who's... Um, neurologically different, Mm -hmm. neurologically divergent. And I've heard from people um, with autism who've, you know, love that character and appreciate that character. So I, it was fun for me to do whether I have the quote unquote right to do that or not. I don't know, but I tried to be fair with it. And there's a great Richard Russo quote, which I love. And he says, a novelist should comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Oh, oh interesting. Yeah. Isn't that great? And and it is. Yeah, and I mean, so you try and do that, right? Just it, a little bit. You want somebody to get to page last and then put the book down and still be thinking about it, right? Yes. So yeah. a book that you could come back to or that has characters, themes, ideas that are resonating with you long after you finished reading, that's that's incredible. So I, I would chalk that up as a win for sure yeah he's such an interesting character and i would think when we're writing characters who are different from ourselves that at their core they're human beings so you have to come at it as okay this is a a living breathing thinking human being who feels things you know deeply in in these instances and and just really making them a full you know full fleshed out character i would think yeah. And he felt yeah. he felt that way to me. Yeah. Oh, good. Well, good. And a two part question from that. So your research into um, dwarfism is, of course, always extensive. All your research is. <laughs> Do you have anyone with dwarfism review like your manuscript to make sure the voice feels on target? Or has anyone with dwarfism reached out to you that's read the book and have any comments? So the first part of that, the answer is my publisher hired a sensitivity reader. Okay. Not a person with dwarfism. Oh, okay. um, But somebody who could look at that. And that was very interesting because there's some common idioms in our language. Like, oh, are you going to fall short on that? Mm -hmm. Oh, And they pointed that out. It's like, oh, my... I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, I wouldn't have thought of that. Mm -mm. That's interesting. Yeah, Yeah. and I don't... I mean, as I... You know, for me as a half-blind person, I... It's okay if you turn the blind eye. It doesn't. <laughs> In my case, it's literal. Yeah. Um, so that's the first. What was the second part of the question? Oh, have I heard? I've yeah. heard from friends. Okay. I haven't, as far as I know, I haven't heard directly. Mm-hmm. But So nobody's um, reached out to you to be like, to say thank I, you for seeing me, or you're totally wrong and I'm mad at you. Yeah, neither neither one of those. But I've, but I've heard from friends who've said, yeah, you got it. So that really? was good. And, and it's great. And that was a lovely thing with my yeah. first series with Sydney Parnell. She was a um, former Marine, served in mortuary affairs. And I heard from a lot of veterans and, really? and caregivers. And that was that was absolutely lovely. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, okay, I've done my job here. Mm-hmm. Entertain first. That's the first thing. But yeah. if you can slide in anything else, you know, yeah. slide in a little spinach. And with the, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it didn't feel like spinach. And oh, good. In fact, I was like... <laughs> I was a little bit in awe. I was like, "Wow, she's going to tackle this one." I would be, I would personally be a little bit scared, and that's you know, you hear so much coming up, and I, I included a question. I didn't know, but it was sort of, 
it's been coming up on my news feed a lot where the Snow White live action has been canceled. Yeah. And one of the points of contention was the representation of people with dwarfism and some people against it and some people mad that it was being taken out and mm. turned into seven magical creatures, mm. like taking yeah. jobs from persons with dwarfism. Exactly. I yeah. don't know if you had any sense since you seem very kind of deep into the community. Yeah, so I, you know, I remember when the controversy started, and and Peter Dinklage spoke out against um, why do why are these roles the only ones that little people are offered? Mm. Um, and he himself has played in movies where it could have, you know, with some changes, uh, um, the character he portrayed could have been portrayed by. Um, you know, by a person of, of mm-hmm. what we call normal height. And he was in Game and of Thrones, right? He yes. was in Game of Thrones. And I think he was in 30 Rock. I think Tina Fey dated him. It's possible. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have Which I, I honestly love. He's extremely handsome. He is a yeah. very yeah. handsome, handsome And so person. is Evan, apparently, so is in Evan. our book. Yeah. yeah, it's funny, though resemblance that <laughs> happened to come out but um yeah and, and his interesting play of Cyrano de Bergerac where mm. Cyrano was not a dwarf mm. and and Peter Dinklage tackled that role and mm. and did it fabulously I thought oh my gosh how's he going to do the sword play because you kind of mm. need some reach and um but he but he pulled it off completely yeah. but it's it really is difficult and there is definitely um a schism in the in the dwarf community as to you know, gosh, I've got to feed my family. I have to put mm-hmm. food on the table. Right. I have to earn a living. Maybe this is not, you know, playing the dwarf in Snow White is mm-hmm. not the ideal for me, but it's a job. Right. And Peter Dinklage has the luxury of being able to turn down jobs. Right. He doesn't have to feed his family from that. Right. No. He, he gets to make different levels of decisions. Yeah. yeah. So, so it was interesting to follow that. And I did not realize the movie had been completely canceled. I know they I don't know if it's the, completely canceled or just paused. I keep hearing like, well, now they're all like seven CGI characters. Uh, exactly. And, and they're, like, not, they're not dwarves now. Well, they're that's magical not a, creatures. Yeah. Well, the magical yeah. creatures kicked up a kerfuffle. And then yeah. I saw the CGI character. I don't really know where they're at it's, right it's now. Just but I just comes so difficult yeah. to you know to walk that line between respecting and not othering people yeah. um and like i was saying earlier who gets the right to tell which stories um yeah so it's it, i heard that even the super bowl commercials this year they were um because there was a there's a peanut allergy about, thing that got canceled. Oh, oh yeah. I didn't hear about that. So yeah. we can't oh, what was the one you heard about? Um, well, it was Bud Light that okay. really screwed the pooch <laughs> <laughs> last year. And so they were mm-hmm. they were trying really hard to not do that. And, and society becomes very bland. When we try um, to not offend anybody. Right. Yeah, yeah. And I just would hope for open-mindedness and tolerance and education. And yeah. we're just... Most of us are doing our best. Mm-hmm. It's so so. It's so interesting in this book. At one point, maybe two thirds through River, Ev- Evan's brother River, who is you know a, a Indiana Jones ish yeah. looking, you know, strapping strapping, yeah, looking rain. acting, yeah, even with the Indiana Jones hat. And at one point, he says to Evan, "You're the only person who even notices, you know, that your height. You're the only person," and you know, they, they have sort of a debate, and it's the closest I think Evan gets to really feeling anger toward this brother he has loved his whole life. 
and they get over it, you know, as loving brothers do. But we see these little sort of like tiny scenes or snippets of interactions throughout the book where people make these comments that I just every time I read them, I went, oh, just to Evan about his height or, you know, smirked or laughed or made really yeah. just offensive. Yeah, that little, is surprising. Little, little, you know, cute jokes, but they weren't cute. And I thought yeah. River's right, but it, in some sense, but River doesn't fully get it. Yeah. And so maybe we can't fully get it unless we're Evan. Yeah, I think that's really true. And that's kind of what I was trying to to highlight in that scene. Um, there's only so far we can go in walking in, in somebody's shoes. And it was interesting after Dark of Night, which is the second book came out. Um, there's a scene where Evan is is stared at in Chicago. And, mm. and somebody responded with, oh, nobody, it's just Chicago. Nobody's mm. going to stare at, at a dwarf mm-hmm. in Chicago. Yeah. Well, sorry. You know, just go on YouTube and and watch the spoofs or watch people just start videoing, videotaping, or videotaping, we don't have that anymore, Um, videoing somebody who has dwarfism. And and you'll see that that's still a thing. Dwarf tossing is still a thing. What? Yeah, yeah. That's, it used to be sort of a geek, you know, the geeks at the circus kind Mm. of thing. But it's still happening. And there's... There's people who are allowing that, allowing themselves to be that because, again, it's food on the table. Okay. Well, so I think Evan and and River are both really interesting characters. I loved Addie and Diana. Oh, good. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I really felt like each, they were very different. So at no point did I conflate them or I was never confused by their descriptions or behaviors, their, their thoughts. But really both interesting women, and I always gravitate toward strong female characters in a book, and and I liked that they weren't dumbed down in any way or made sort of um, incidental to the scenes they were in. They were actually quite important to every scene they were in. Mm-hmm. Um, Evan, of course, being in more scenes than anyone else, and rightfully so as the protagonist, but uh, I really just thought in the scenes that where they appear, they're actually integral. So I was thinking, even if you edited them out, you would feel their absence. Oh, God. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and, and so, like, male characters versus female characters. Again, we get into what per, what's our purview as a, a writer, as a yeah. female writer, writing Dr. You know, Evan Wilding, like, yeah, female yeah. writing the male perspective or mm-hmm. vice versa. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. it's complicated stuff. I guess, you know, like we were saying at the core, they're a human being. Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, it is funny writing from a male perspective because um, what it, there's, there's that joke about how often men think about certain things like, <laughs> every few seconds. Yes. Um, I had to portray women mm-hmm. from the viewpoint of men, which was mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, now how would a man view Diana and, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, so that, so that was fun too, but yeah, it's, you're right. You know, what perspectives can we tell? And Mm -hmm. I, I loved having the, Mm -hmm. the female perspective and having smart, tough axe throwing women. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, at one point Addie bursts into tears and her partner, Patrick, sort of takes her aside. So they're not in the public purview or, you know, they're not being witnessed by anyone. And he says to her, you know, first of all, he's older and he's male and he's 
but he's really human about it. And he's like, yeah, I've cried myself, you know, in several of these kinds of incidents as well. And I, I liked how human he was and he wasn't just some sort of blustery guy, but they were two police officers, human beings, you know, reacting to events that had played out in the book. And, um, I, I think that those sorts of things make the book rich versus, you know, something that is is maybe something more typical in a book where we would see that she's crying and now that's a problem and she can't cry because she's a police officer. And <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I don't know if that makes sense. But no, but yeah, it's interesting. And, and it's funny you bring that up because um, just having been at the Sisters in Crime event this afternoon mm-hmm. and, and the cops talking about having to deal with traumatic events and mm-hmm. how they process um, post-traumatic stress. And I teach creative writing to veterans. So of mm-hmm. course we're dealing with a lot of PTSD. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's the greatest joy to me of writing is the characters and getting into the characters and imagining how they would feel about things or how they would respond to things. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm glad that that, that that came across. Mm-hmm. Along those lines, I noticed this book had a lot of brothers. So you had River and Evan, you had Lowell and Peter, you had, uh, what was it? Eddie and what was his Billy? Brother? This was Billy. A few Eddie, and Billy. <laughs> yeah, Eddie and Billy. Yeah, Eddie and Billy. Um, was that a conscious theme to kind of deal with these different types of, might we say, dysfunctional brothers, or was it just coincidence? I don't think it was. That, that is such a great question, Sarah. I don't think it was. Um, it was intentional. First of all, mm-hmm. I have a brother. I don't have any sisters. I have a brother who's seven years older. So I know the brother-sister thing. Mm-hmm. Um, or I know what it's like to have a brother. And and also the actions in this book are the kind that are normally perpetrated by men. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. Uh, there's a part of me that regrets not making River, Evan's brother, female and having oh, a female really? Indiana Jones. But <laughs> I have Diana. And, and, yeah, um, they suit. Yeah, it's... it's there's enough similarity there that I think that it works. So mm-hmm. I have kind of wondered about myself and sometimes the, mm. the family relationships mm. I pick, you know, mm-hmm. the, the fathers and the mothers and the siblings and how that all folds yeah. in. Yeah, each of the brother sets had this father character that really was impactful and usually not a good way. <laughs> there was a lot of absent mothers, whether they actually died or they just weren't there. And then these very negatively influential fathers. Again, was that like a conscious choice or just kind of bubbled up from somewhere? I love that you ask these kinds of questions, um, but they're tough. I, You know, partly that goes back to the fairy tales. Mm. Because think how often there's no mother mm. and mm-hmm. there's an incompetent very father. Yeah, yeah. In the fairy tales. So Hansel is, and Gretel comes to Hansel mind. Gretel. My daughter's Cinderella. obsessed with that one. Yeah, I'll give her some Cinderella. bread and make sure she takes it with her. Yeah, she's always <laughs> playing, I'm Gretel, Murray's. <laughs> and they're like why is the mother doing this i'm like she's the stepmother that's why yeah, that's why stepmothers are always evil in these books right mm-hmm. i mean cinderella is the classic choice of that yes. what is the psychology of that where did these fairy tales mm-hmm. come from mm-hmm. was it did we have a lot of orphans at the time that these books were being you know these fairy tales were being written i don't know but the mother is typically considered the nurturer mm-hmm. and the father's the bread earner so Father's often absent. If you take away the mother, you really have somebody who's bereft. They've lost mm-hmm. that protection, and they're thrust into a society that that may that may be cruel. And that's what happens in these fairy tales. And that's mm-hmm. 
what kids can take away is, mm-hmm. yeah, even if I lose that support system, I'm going to be okay. Right. I can manage. Right. I was thinking about the mothers, and you have two single mothers, and both of their kids got killed and nobody searched for them. So you have these two single mothers yeah. that are very upset in similar ways. Can you talk about that? I, I think the combination, I'm going to do a little self psychoanalysis here um (laughs) you know first first of all the fairy tale thing so those were the stories i loved Mm -hmm. um second you have i believe more families with uh, that are single parent families it's the mom Mm -hmm. not the dad so that's just more common Mm -hmm. and then having lost my own son i could Mm -hmm. understand the pain and you know his his case was epilepsy but um I was helpless. Mm -hmm. There was nothing anybody could come in and and fix or do about that. There was nothing to be done. So I I suspect all of that Mm -hmm. plays on. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the reason um, I teach writing to veterans, it's it's a combination. It's a collaboration between um, the Department of Defense and the National Endowment of the Arts Mm -hmm. to bring healing arts to veterans. And writing is one of the the best tools for working through PTS or whatever issues you might be dealing with. And I suspect I've got an element of that in my Mm -hmm. own writing. You know, I can process it that way. Um, And and it's good. It gets it out. Yeah. Yeah. Terrible fathers in this book. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Evan's father as well. When we finally meet Evan's father. Evan's father's not a nice guy. I actually couldn't even believe it. I was like, he is the biggest turd. (laughs) Is there is there a person who is like this? I'm sure there is, but yeah. do you not know any father. people not like that? Okay, <laughs> not modeled. Yeah, I'm Barbara's father. Write that down. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yes, I have known people. Oh wow, he was he was just unbelievable to me. I just I couldn't believe I wanted to slap him through the page. You know that it's that massive ego and parents who consider children an extension of themselves. So mm-hmm. if there's something wrong with the child, then there's something wrong with so the they adult, just like right? Shun him. Well, and that's what made it so incredible. Of all these, so you have these three sets of brothers, six mm-hmm. brothers. Evan, who maybe is arguably the most shunned, is also the one who wants to actually have a family and be a parent. What is that about? I think he just wants a normal family life. That's mm-hmm. he's mostly a homebody mm-hmm. um, now. He wasn't in his mm-hmm. younger days, but um, yeah. but it's also a chance to um, yeah to kind of rectify those wrongs. And I and I saw an interesting documentary. Actually, it was the um, Andrew Solomon Far from the Tree, mm. and it was two um, two people with dwarfism that were having a child and mm. whether they were they hoping that that child would be of of average height or were right. they hoping oh. that the child would be a dwarf and um and that was I'm not gonna I'm not gonna give it away like, what but were watching they hoping? that I know, <laughs> okay, it was I'm not what you might it. expect but yeah go, go watch it. that it's um it was really interesting their decision making mm-hmm. process on that you know whether to have a child and 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 what they hoped for so, yeah you can picture I can picture Evan sort of he's gotten to a place where not everything is perfectly resolved in his life but he has been parenting himself to some degree giving himself what was lacking in his own parenting Mm -hmm. and then I could see him being a great partner and parent so I, I could see all of that coming to fruition whereas River um 
No pun intended. <laughs> True. <laughs> exactly. Um, whereas River, uh, you know, has a lot of those qualities as well. He's a very likable character and a great mm-hmm. brother, but maybe has a few more of his father's traits. I want to travel the world. I get, you know, it, you know, I get a little itchy if I'm sitting somewhere too long and I got to be on an airplane and go do something else, another adventure. And um, at one point, Evan's talking about going to, to Mali. And I was nervous for him. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, don't go there. No, yeah, but not don't the do safest that. place. <laughs> don't do that. And, you know, and at the end of the book, he's you know saying, well, I probably won't be going to Mali. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah. And so you're seeing this series as being a, a, a three part or three book series. So we, we don't want to talk about how the book ends, but we're, we might not we see. We do, but we won't. We, 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 yes, we do, but we won't. But we might not see Evan in a, another book. Are you going to sneak him in as another character like you did before? Yeah, really, that's a great idea. Yeah. Uh, we'll see. My editor has asked me to write a spinoff mm-hmm. of this one with River. Mm-hmm. Oh, with River. And, and another character. Okay, that's um, cool. And so then I'll need to address those issues okay. of River's constantly wanting to run yeah. away, yes. basically. Yeah. Um, We'll see how the psychology of that works out. Okay. Yeah. Uh, maybe the in the spy novel they'll need uh, you know semiotics expert to yeah. weigh in on. Like, it sounds oh, like you need one all the time, just in your back handy. pocket. They're handy. Yeah, they're very <laughs> handy to have on hand. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I know. Yeah, I mean, and he was so smart in so many different areas. He could even not only with the signs and symbols, but the um, in the mythology. But the psychology potentially underlying what mm-hmm. was happening. Well, I could picture that this might have been, you know, the, the childhood this individual had. Or he could actually extrapolate in really interesting ways. So he was he was an introspective and obviously very educated yeah. guy. Yeah, that was fun to play with. And as we now know from this interview, you don't know what you're going to reveal about yourself in your writing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, well, and I do know some folks where, where toxic parents are involved. Mm. They have actually fared the best when they didn't get toxic attention, when they were a little bit neglected. Mm-hmm. And it's sad from that perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, but they also, it's a good thing in that they they weren't kind of warped by it either. So I could see Evan yeah. kind of benefiting from kind of just being left to his nanny. Yeah. Who yeah. loved him. Yep, that's yeah, they true. Had, they point. say at one point they had good nannies. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would think that that would help. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I just I just had one more mm-hmm. sort of group of questions. And I know this is going to be an extra bonus length feature because Barbara is so fascinating. But you are in so much depth of detail around Chicago. You used to live in Chicago. I used to live in Chicago before I, I moved here. Chicago. We all used to live in Chicago. I've never lived in Chicago. Really? Oh, I thought you did. No. I Tell me about the setting of Chicago then. How did you land on that within, I guess you used a lot of Google Maps. but It was a combination. So um, I was made in Japan, born in Guam. Oh, I And I've that. lived in Colorado most of my life. Mm. So my first series is set in Denver. Mm. Um, I didn't want to do that again with the second series. Mm. And I had spent this fabulous weekend with my brother mm. in Chicago. Mm-hmm. He lives on the East Coast, and we met in Chicago. And we just geeked out on all the museums, and it was a blast. Yeah. Um, and my husband's aunt lives in Chicago. So the oh, plan okay. was for me to go live with her for a while 
and really get to know the city. And then the pandemic happened. Mm. So, um, so yes, I had readers, beta readers from Chicago, and I had Google Maps. Um, and then um, before the next book, I got to go and spend a good amount of time in Chicago and go go to all the different places that I cover in my book. Mm-hmm. Um, so you did see the University of Chicago. Yes. Which in my yes. mind is one of the highlights. I got oh. to tour their campus and mm-hmm. it's just like, It oh. is fabulous. Mm-hmm. And I got to go in and I picked where Evan's office was. Nice. And so, yeah, that was, I could totally hang out there all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's so wonderful. Um, and then and then all the, the streets that they went to and the river yeah. walk and all of that. So hopefully, yeah. hopefully that came through okay. For yeah. sure. Yeah, I have a sister who lives in River North in, in Chicago. Oh, yeah. 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 So every time I'm seeing something in the book, I'm like, oh, River North. Yay. Yeah, yeah I did various <laughs> landmarks and streets. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that was fun. Yeah, that yeah, was fun for me too. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Well, awesome. Barbara, this has been a fascinating interview. Thank oh, you. Oh, you guys are great. You have wonderful questions. Thanks. Well, it, you make it easy when you write a, a really interesting and fun book. We yeah. would recommend anybody pick up this book. It's Play of Shadows, uh, and there's a three-book series here with Dr. Evan Wilding. Mm-hmm. And then you also have another series that I have not read yet, and that is the Sydney Parnell crime novels. Yeah, she's a railroad cop here in Denver. Mm-hmm. So um, railroad police have the same jurisprudence as traditional police, okay. except that their their territory is like 100 feet wide and 30,000 miles long. Interesting. <laughs> I so, love that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I love trains. So I pair her with a Denver detective so that, you know, I can cover both railroad property and off-railroad property. <laughs> I, I think it'd be fun, Sarah, for us to read one of those, uh, the Sydney Parnells, and have you back sometime if yeah, you'd be willing would, to come That on. would be a blast. Yeah, Thank you. we're huge train fans, huge. Sarah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, good. I used to work on the train. You did? What <laughs> did you do? I was a car manager and tour guide in Alaska. Wow. So I used to give Alaskan tours, and I got to run through the railroad. Oh, it was that's really awesome. It was a lot of fun. Wow. Yeah, it was a, you could have been a SME. I could have. Kind of. <laughs> very narrowly. Yeah. Yeah, not for the police like part, gauge? though. No. Um, part of, I wasn't on the narrow gauge part. That was I was on the standard railroad part, humor. But, oh. <laughs> but you were, so you were on regular railroad? Yeah, yeah. But there was narrow gauge, so you got me there. Yeah, like, well, she does yeah. know her railroads. <laughs> hey, it's Colorado here. We have lots of narrow gauge, though. That's mm-hmm. true. Yeah, I try and go on the, all the trains here. Oh. But... And what is your upcoming series? So I'm writing a standalone. It's a oh a standalone Excuse yeah me. spy novel. And after great agony and back and forth with with my publisher's marketing team, we finally have a title. Ooh. It's called the Drowning Game. Oh, mm. that does not sound like a game. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you never know. Um, it's both. Um, so I, I went to Singapore in August because part of the novel is set in Singapore. Mm. So um, that was a lot of fun. Once that is again, really cool. You know, I just I just have to find an excuse, All right. right? I'm gonna to become go to a writer. Places. This is what I'm taking away from Do this it. conversation. <laughs> Oh, I assume all these trips are tax deductible. Exactly. (laughs) It's all a write off. Mm -hmm. And where can people find you, Barbara? What are all your social handles? Do you have websites? How can they look you up? So I have a website, www.barbaranicholas, and that's an unusual spelling, um, barbaranicholas.com, and you can find my social media links on my website. 
Awesome. Yep, it's Barbara, N-I-C-K-L-E-S-S dot com. Right. Mm-hmm. All right. Everyone, check out Barbara. Go run out, get any of her books. I'm sure they're all fascinating. And we'll share all of your your website and, and social, all of that. Amazon links, all of that on our website mm-hmm. as well. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you. This all was right. a lot of fun. Thank Thanks, you for Barbara. being here. This has been amazing. Yeah, and until next time, listener, please stay mysterious.